Hi, everybody. This is Tony and Marcolini. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. Today, I have Peter Kiesewater with me. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about the Moth Project with him. There's a bunch of, a, a, a bunch of other things as well. Uh, but uh, I think he kind of married, you know, science and music, uh, which is, you know, always fascinating. Uh, and uh, I thought we could all learn about it directly from Peter. So welcome, Peter. Hi, Tony. How's it going? Good. Today it's going okay. <laughs> so let's talk about your background. I mean, I want to get into the Moth Project, but uh, I'm sort of interested in what led you to the moment. Oh, that's a long story. Um, uh, the short answer is the pandemic, right? Um, so I have three kids. I live in Brooklyn, pandemic hits, I grabbed my three kids and I and Whitney, who's my partner in the Moth Project. And we went to the family cottage up in Canada just to get away. I, you know, New York felt like, um, you know, one of those bad movies where they were, are they going to wrap this island in a curtain right now? Like that movie Contagion or something. So right. it was quite alarming at the time. My family in Canada was saying, get out of there, go come here to the cottage. So Jumped in the car, headed to the cottage, and my little brother, who is an interpretive naturalist, um, park ranger, for lack of a better word, brought his three kids to the cottage. So we hung out there for the summer, um, and he had taken up mothing uh, that summer, um, which is a word. It's a thing. It's it's the new birding, really. Um, he's taking pictures of moths at night, and in the 45 years, Tony, that I've been going to this cottage, I had not paid attention to the sheer number, the diversity of moths or anything that was there. So on one night, for example, he documented 87 different species of moths. And I, I was, you know, I had taken up fretting that summer because I was freaking out over what I was going to do for the rest of my life. You know, all my work had been canceled and we didn't know, are we ever going to be allowed to play music in a room for people anymore? So slowly well, that's true. you have a music background right just to, oh yeah that... I, I mean i moved to new york 25 years ago to, to i'm a musician um i have a degree in classical clarinet and jazz saxophone performance um i was the resident for six years we kind of lost you there after you said jazz saxophone you garbled out <laughs> oh well, um, yeah, uh, my degree is in uh, classical clarinet and jazz saxophone. I moved here 25 years ago just to to be in what I thought is the center of the universe and um, a very diverse ecosystem for, for my line of work, right? This is where all the music that I love was invented. So I came here with the intention of staying for four months, and I've been here, well, 26 years and counting at this point. So... My brother, myself, and our six collective kids are at the, the family cottage. He's mothing, um, and uh, oh, slowly over the course of evening campfires, um, at which I'm actually watching real moths self-immolate, and I turn to him and go, Toby, what, what's that about? What is that about? Because that's basically all we know in Western mythology is the whole like a moth to flame metaphor for fatal attraction, right? Right, you can't help yourself. <laughs> right, you know it. You know there's nothing good's going to come of flying at the at that light, but the oh, moth does it anyway. That's a good point because that's the first thing I found online when I started to do a bit of research on them was like um, a poem written from the moth's perspective about a hundred years ago. Why do we go to the flame? Well, it's like that Neil Young song, you know, 
hey, hey, my, my, it's better to die young than to fade away kind of thing. That's the tone of that poem. That's where I started with this project. And it took me a year. Um, and thankfully, being Canadian, I did receive a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts um, to take a year and and put the show together. Um, I mean, it's still a little bit of a work in progress, but I spent a lot of time uh, integrating visuals, getting footage from entomologists and scientists and photographers from all over the world. Um, and it started with my little brother's pictures because they're quite spectacular. Um, and I started to, to find a narrative art that sort of uh, mirrored my family's migration from Europe to Canada in the 1950s and how that sort of related to the natural world in general and moths in specific. Um, you know, uh, my little brother was feeding me lyric ideas about the life cycle of moss and the four stages. And it just didn't seem genuine for me as a musician, as an artist to be coming at it from the scientific perspective, which is his genre, his milieu, right? So I came at it from a, a more of a storytelling, uh, like how is it that moths relate to me? And in these moths that were right in front of my eyes, self-immolating, I thought, um, I recognized what you referred to as maybe there is something else that worked there. Maybe they're, maybe they have a reckless spirit or something, you know? I started there and then started to explore other, other mythologies and other modalities of thinking about them. Um, well, and, so to say a reckless spirit, though, right, would, would also, to my mind, translate to the fact that they have some self-awareness, right? That there's something, there's some brain or some, uh, uh, you know, um, yeah. impulse that tells them there's danger associated with it. Which is, I mean, is that is that fair? Uh, it's fair. It's it's not the case. Um, it's this is what humans tend to do. We anthropomorphize nature in order for it to make more sense to us. So we give animals cute names and and dress them up, kind of thing. That's not really the case, although who knows, right? The scientific theory about this process of immolation is called transverse orientation, whereby the moths use light to navigate. They use the moon and the stars to navigate at night, which is when they're active. They're nocturnal creatures, which is another thing that resonated with me. I'm a nocturnal musician kind of thing. So I thought, okay, I see something there as well. Anyways, when they see fire, that light sort of... Um, it it uh, it hijacks their navigation system and it, it makes them fly erratically into the fire that it thought was its navigational star. That's the theory. It's almost unanimously accepted among scientists that that's what that, that, that what happens when they self-immolate. Um, but there's still the, the people still question that. What what's that all about? Um, again, I like to think that they have um, you know developed cerebral cortex is where it's like they're reckless but i don't think that's the case but that's where i started okay so now what happens next you realize you're detecting patterns you're talking to your brother yeah and and what's what's the theory behind creating this before you get to the actual process of creating there's less theory and more just a, a need i mean i've you know, I'm pushing 60 at this point. I've always done my own thing. I don't know why I do um, uh, do the things that I do um, because often they don't, they are not self-sustainable in the short term. Uh, I mean, ultimately it cost me my marriage um, 
years ago when for a year I was in my studio doing something that was not paying any bills. I put work into something and then three or four years later, this has been my pattern that like it starts to, to gain traction um, and it starts to pay back all the investment that I put into something. Um, and that's difficult to, to live with someone like that, but that that's, there wasn't a theory so much as there was, I think I got to do this. Um, for one, it felt um, also that's uh, um, the, um, last summer, our father uh, passed away. Um, we were at this cottage that he had built um, experiencing the natural world, which the pandemic uh, gave us the luxury to do, uh, which I'd never experienced before. Uh, I felt like I was waking up from a lifelong nap. Um, the other thing that helped that summer was reading a book by Robin Walt Kimmerer, who is a best-selling author. She's um, indigenous. She's a botanist. Um, and she has a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is a series of essays which um, are basically about the natural world and ask the question, what can I gift the earth in return for everything it gives me, including the privilege of breath, the food that I eat, which are very valid questions. And when, when you wrap your head around that way of thinking, it sure makes you sit up and take notice in a way that I had never done before. So between that book and my little brother and his pictures, and I mean, uh, uh, that was sort of the impetus and the catalyst behind getting the ball rolling on this. Um, and then for me, I was inspired by some of the imagery I was finding and getting, uh, being granted permission from various photographers, like I said, from around the world and um, and making these connections between using the grander themes of, uh, you know, life, death, self-immolation, migration. Um, certainly metamorphosis was a big one because I, feel like I'm at the point in my life where I want to do what the moths are doing when they self-annihilate, right? They they annihilate themselves on a cellular level. They build a cocoon and emerge as winged adults. It's an astounding act in chemistry, and it's incredibly profound in its symbolism as well, you know? Um, like Kafka, right? The, the it's like Kafka. The Kafka, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I felt like I was at that stage, too, where I wanted to do that, and I... I Time saw to reinvent. <laughs> exactly. Uh, get rid of a lot of stuff that I didn't need to carry around anymore. Um, and by the way, there has been a scientific study whereby they've proven, scientists being they, that between the, the caterpillar, uh, the larva stage, and the winged adult stage, moths do have memory. When they build a cocoon and annihilate themselves and turn into goo and emerge as winged adults, they remember things from when they were caterpillars, which is kind of astounding to me. Wow. Um, so um, just the more homework I, I started to do and the more attention I started to pay to this place I've been coming to my whole life, but never really paid attention. Like, why is it that my kids can name you a thousand corporate logos when they see them, but they can't name you six trees, you know? That's tragic. Um, and this is everything I was reading in the book. Uh, it was just an awakening for me and, and, and a moment in time where I wanted to make art that meant something to me on a, on a personal level. So the, the telling of my family's story seemed, you know, given the declining health of my father, um, where we were at the cottage that we had coming, been coming to our whole lives that I had helped build, um, in the midst of 
incredibly beautiful nature up in the Canadian Shield on a lake. It, it all came together quite organically and quite naturally with no intention of how am I going to sell this show? Because that's the hard part right now. It's very difficult to explain and to sell. Um, there is no, there's, there's no blueprint for this, you know? Well, there's a book connected to this too, correct? That it's basically, that there is a book. It's kind of an extended liner notes thing where, again, I, I, I found it hard for me at this point in my career and this point where technology has rendered musically a free commodity that comes on your phone, right? My kids are never going to save their paper route money and buy a new record by Stevie Wonder or Electric Light Orchestra or whatever. It comes free on the phone. So I have a hard time making another CD and charging people 20 bucks for it when, um, when it's free everywhere else online. Um, however, I do think and I've been proven right that when people come to our shows, they will buy something tangible that they can hold in their hands that has all the liner notes, all the lyrics, the production information, plus a whole bunch of other pictures and little extra content on moths. Um, so that's basically what the book is about. Less less a, a, a piece of science than it is a, um, a companion to the, the recording. So let's talk about creating the music that can, that's the companion to this. Right. Well, um, so in I've had a pretty wide ranging uh, musical education and career. Like I said, um, classical clarinet was my training. Um, many years of my life were strictly focused on playing jazz music, which is why I came to New York in the first place. I just needed to be at the heart of it. Um, jazz is actually my favorite. Just a little side note. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I think. For, Personally, um, I think it's the greatest thing America's ever invented uh, <laughs> in the last hundred years. Like far and away, the world loves the United States anywhere you go because of its pop culture, its music. And it, it begins with the blues, it's jazz, it's bluegrass music, it's rock rock and roll. Are you kidding me? Like um, all the stuff that comes from the United States, all these music genres, which is why I came. I wanted to immerse myself at the source um, the music in the show is eclectic. It's it it's ranges from solo unaccompanied Bach um, to a Joni Mitchell tune, a tune by Chikoria, um, original songs written as metaphors for various stages of the moss life, pheromones, migration, emergence, um, uh, songs that on a literal level might appear to be about the moss, but on a metaphorical level are really more about myself and, and my family's experiences. Um, so it's it's all over the place. And that's kind of by design to reflect the diversity of the moth species themselves. Um, all the music we play is, is like a, a bench post from a period of my life where that particular piece or that song um, had a profound impact on, on, on me as a, as a, uh, as a student of music. Well, let's talk a little bit about the creative process. I, I like to focus on that. I'm really fascinated. Um, I have all different creators, I'd like to say, on the podcast. So that yeah. ranges from, you know, writers of book or people, actors or actresses who create a character, people yeah. who write music uh, like yourself. Uh, and I'm always interested in, in how do you create? What is your process for that, I mean, and do, to the extent that you have one, I mean, the, you must have something that, that 
it may not involve jogging in the morning and and exactly. having pancakes, but I mean, is there is there a process by which you you create, you can get inspired? Um, I always remember uh, an interview I, I heard with Jerry Seinfeld once, uh, and the question basically was, "What's your what's your process?" And he says, "I go to work. I I go to work. I sit down every day at the same time, and it's uh, he'll work six to eight hours on writing jokes, you know." So for me, um, when I really got into the nitty gritty of this, it was work. Um, I would get up and I, um, I, I'd have a keyboard in, in front of me. Sometimes I knew that I was going to already play um, a tune that seemed appropriate for the context of the show. There's a tune by Alison Goldfrapp called Become the One You Know You Are. She wrote it about transitioning youths. It's a gorgeous, beautiful very moving song in the context of this show of the moth becoming what it always knew it was it seemed to make sense so um i didn't change anything except brought my own spin on the on the music aspect of it in terms of writing the words that was work it was hard work because because spewing scientific facts about moss just it's it didn't it didn't feel like it was mine. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel genuine. It felt, um, it, it, it felt fake. Like, um, you know, like a bad elementary school, uh, science report or something that I was putting melodies to. So I had to find, uh, um, ways to literally, uh, Describe of the pheromones that a moth emits to attract the male moth. At the same time, trying to find metaphor to to make it appear that this song was actually a beautiful love song that I was singing, you know. And that was work. That, that I for weeks at a time I would I would come and write and scratch out and write again and turn the microphone on and see how that sounded. Listen to it the next day. Um, the, the jogging thing really does help. Things do come to me as I'm running. Um, um, but it was work and it was hard work. Um, a lot of it didn't come like quickly in a flash of inspiration for me. So it's it, it's a job where some people get in their car and drive to work. I, um, I get up in front of my keyboard and turn it on uh, with a notebook in my hand and, and, um, uh, for me, some of the tools are like definitely a rhyming dictionary. I do like uh, um, uh, a more old school approach in terms of the scansion of syllables to rhymes, uh, kind of old fashioned that way. Um, so I, I, I try to see what <laughs> metamorphosis or pheromones or whatever and start there, you know, piecing things together one line at a time. Um, but it was work. It was work. Sure. And then like recording, you know, obviously the, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite so a process. <laughs> it is. And if you hear on the record, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of information on there, you know? Um, uh, so, so some of the tunes, a couple of them are um, things in my, you know, every composer has a library of rejected things that they've done for a particular job that were not used. And a couple of those things, the song emergence, for example, um, uh, a TV show approached me once, and this is someone I'd worked for before. So this seemed less like a thing I was doing on spec for them and more like they wanted to redo their TV theme. And they gave me the direction of, uh, um, they wanted it to sound like a Michael Jackson track, um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. 
They wanted that tempo, that groove, that instrumentation, um, that vibe. Um, and I went to town on it. I uh, actually hired musicians. I paid musicians. Um, and I thought it was killing this version of this TV theme I did. It ended up, uh, and much to my chagrin, they said, yeah, I think we're going in another direction. It sat on my hard drive for a decade. Um, and then I, I uh, um, for the song Emergence, I wanted it to be a celebratory uh, sort of coming out tune that that on the one level is literally about a moth coming out of its cocoon. But the visual treatment I did with the, 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 the visuals in the show and the spirit uh, and vibe of the of the music itself um, suggested that you know this could actually be a disco anthem for 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 coming out um, uh, for like a young gay person coming out of closet kind of thing you know um, so in that case that was something that I had done ten years ago and then quickly adapted for for this show um, um, but some of the other things I, I I wrote from from scratch and. Like I say, those were those were work. I'm not a prolific write three songs a day kind of songwriter, so I tend to take a long time. Um, and as you hear on the on the record, there's a lot of instruments uh, on this layers of of strings that Whitney played much of rhythm section. Some things are just piano and and violin, but but there's a lot of other stuff happening. Um, and because I have my own studio, I I, I did it slowly whenever inspiration um, struck as opposed to booking studio time and hoping that in the week or something that you have there, that you, you get it all down. I, I did this slowly over the course of a year. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about now this, this, this launch. Yeah. So you it must be pretty excited. I mean, it's finally, it's finally come to fruition. Uh, in that sense. Yeah. I, and on the other hand, Tony, this like the work begins now that like, <laughs> You know, you know what we all have to be these days. We have to we have to sell ourselves now. Um, the the paradigm of the, of this business, my business, the music business, has undergone drastic changes in the last five years, the last ten years. Used to be, I would sell records and and I could make a living off of selling CDs uh, at shows and in stores. That that doesn't exist for me anymore as an option. And we all have to take on a million other jobs that the label used to do or managers used to do. I think we're all our own PR departments, our own booking agents. Um, rightfully so, um, because the business is broken as it has existed for a few decades, you know? So that, the, the yes, the, the, the show is there in a form that where we can go out on the road, we can play in clubs, playing theaters, screen rooms, outdoor botanical gardens, museums, um, and galleries, corporate events. Um, we have a show. We can go out there and do it. The work in getting the word out and booking those shows, that's the hard part. And that's that's what I'm in the thick of right now for booking next year and beyond. The show is evolving a little bit. And speaking with people like yourself who can get the word out and, and help me describe what it is the show is all about. It's hard to describe. Well, and you have Robin Wall Kilmer, right? Lending, uh, yeah. I guess you could say her voice to it. Yes, voice, words. Uh, and the most important thing was blessing to me. Um, you know, um, I chopped up bits of her speeches I found online. And, uh, you know, a lot of your listeners might not know who this remarkable woman is. She's a recent 
MacArthur Fellow. So every year, these MacArthur Genius Grants get doled out to people that this committee deems to be um, worthy recipients of a, of a, of a boatload of money and an accolade that comes with it. Super smart people. <laughs> Super smart, creative people who, who yeah. resonate on a very high vibration level, you know. Um, and this book of hers is, uh, is celebrating its 10th anniversary now at this point. It's sold over 2 million copies around the world, which for a book about plants um, is kind of remarkable. Um, tracking her down took me six months. Uh, it was impossible to get a hold of her, even through her, her publishing company, her PR people. They had no idea what it was that I was asking for. Even in my most clear, concise English, they could not understand what I was asking for was permission. What do you want? You want to license her book? No, no. I want her to see what it is that I'm doing with her words and her speeches and say, you have my permission and my blessing for this. And finally, I got in touch with her and got as much uh, from her. But like I said, I'm, it, that's the hard part is explaining what, what this is. Is this music? Uh, is this a, a movie? Is this a book? What, um, it's a live multimedia show, two musicians in front of a huge screen. And we wear white and kind of disappear into the images that are projected onto us. So from start to finish, it's it's the pictures and the sound are very much integrated. So um, um, and all the, the interstitial between the songs and the music have this loose narrative arc again about my my family's um, story. So it's right at that intersection there of, of, of art and science, as you mentioned earlier. Well, sure. And there's a lot of that, like with, with climate, you know, change yeah. and the like, there's a lot of connectiveness between music and science these days. Yeah. Um, so I sort of looked at your project as an extension of that. Yeah. I mean, we're, right. we're hearing, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we're hearing from scientists right now that their, their way of disseminating information is going through a pretty profound change right now. Gone is the modality of throwing information from an expert to listeners, like on a nature hike. What you see here, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work. So who better than artists to turn to to help make something, information like that, uh, entertaining and resonate on, as they say, hearts first and then minds, you know, hearts first. And, and I think uh, the obvious is that you have the method of um, reaching a lot more ears, uh, you know, than than most people. And maybe this is a generalization that uh, is not necessarily welcome, but I, most people don't go in search of science. Uh, for, for the most part, it's the science they stumble upon. You're right. So, I mean, I think that they're they're reading a book that mentions something, even in even fiction, you know, in the course of the fiction they're reading um, yeah. or they're listening to music or they're musicians or their music, their their favorite artists. Or maybe there is a movie, uh, yeah. something that draws their attention to this, whether it's a study or what's happening. And that's how they get interested. That's how they investigate. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. And there are authors that write from a perspective, uh, even fiction. I mean, Barbara Kingsolver just won the Pulitzer for a book and her, her writing generally um, instills a sense of awe and wonder in the natural world, right? There are a number of writers that, that do it. So you're not getting a piece of fiction, but also a perspective that that 
that diverts your attention to, to the natural world. Um, you know, getting the majority of people on the planet to actually believe science is another question. Um, uh, as you mentioned, people don't go looking for it. And when presented with it, they still won't believe it, which is hilarious because science is, in essence, truth. Um, so is art at, at its core. Art and science, why are they They're so... capturing two different things, though. Right. Science, it's in my mind anyway, uh, mm -hmm. science is there to to have testing uh, that's reliable, provable uh, yeah. with a me methodology to it. Yeah. Uh, art is is you're trying to capture in, in your butterfly net uh, feelings. Right. Yeah. Things that, you know, that's the whole right. The purpose of art really is to make you emote uh, yeah. is, is to capture, you know, hate and love and passion and jealousy and uh, joy um, yeah. all of those things in in the same in the same net and show people like we're 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 connected right we're connected by these range of motions that the majority of us all experience during our lifetime yeah so i think when i see art whether it be a painting or a book or a a piece of music that, that i'm listening to somehow you've captured you know, an emotion that I can feel through the experience of how you've expressed your art. Yeah. Uh, but scientists, they're, they're going for something totally different, right? They they have tests and rulers and, and methodology yeah. uh, for something that they can tell me for certain is reliable, reliable to jump to a particular conclusion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think that what about marrying those two concepts or putting those two concepts together? Uh, I mean, you just got to stand back and watch watch the fireworks, right? Bingo. Um, and in the case with the Moth Project, we're, we're doing some shows where my little brother, who actually is a, a, a scientist, he will come do half an hour before us on moths. So you're actually getting... Um, two brothers, one's a scientist, one's an artist, speaking about the same thing from two different perspectives. It's kind of cool. Um, I mean, we're sprinkling some science throughout the show, but to, to see someone uh, come up who knows what they're talking about, uh, speaking about the same thing, it's, it's it makes for an interesting evening. Um, again, two, two different perspectives on the same subject matter. Sure. So... If you like jazz and you like uh, learning a little bit about science, yeah. uh, and and what I found really interesting about the whole thing is the analogy aspect, right? Of you, you, you took one particular, uh, I guess, species of bugs. You know, a moth. They're they officially a bug, I guess, right? An insect. Yes, they are. They're they are an insect, right? So, yeah, you took that one particular species and said. Um, let me look for analogies or parallels. Let me see what we know scientifically is happening. And the reason I think that's such an important, of all, of all the ones you could have picked, right? I, I think that's so important because you picked one that truly transforms during its lifetime. I mean, I'm no, I'm not an expert. I don't know how many others do that, but that's the one we all know about, right? That's the one we all know start off as a, you oh. know, look, look, they're crawling along and then they're flying along, right? That they, they, you know, they just turn into something else completely. Uh, and the, and you know, the imagery of that uh, is quite magnificent. It is. 
you know, the imagery that you can be one thing and then another. And yeah. if that doesn't hold true to the human spirit, I, I, I really, I, I don't know what else does. Um, can you write my next press release? Exactly. Yes. Just, just say exactly that. Uh, uh, you know, like, that's why I like, I, I like talking with people because they'll often illuminate something that I had, I had struggled to find the right words. Um, but that's exactly that. That's exactly it. These things that turn into something else and how, how, uh, how great an analogy is that for what I think cures human beings um, of all stripes go through throughout their life cycle as well. You know, well, human beings are, are really resilient. Um, and we do reinvent ourselves, do we not? In many uh, ways, sometimes. Um, I I think um, I'll, I'll say that not everyone does, and I think <laughs> the ones that are successful at it um, uh, have figured it out. Uh, and a lot of people who become bitter um, are not as pliable and not maybe as curious or have a hard time struggling to evolve and change. We from like I always when I was in therapy, I joked with my therapist that the, the peak of my life was when I was 10. I could do no wrong at that age. Everything was flowing. I was vibrating, firing from all cylinders. I could do anything. No anxiety, no worries, no, uh, you know, and that the rest of my life is trying to get back to that point. Because since then, I've developed all these blockades, these these. um these preconceptions, these fears that inhibit me from that that purity that I had at that age. That's a massive generalization, but I think all human beings go through that. Like we're different than when we we're young and pure and free. And over the course of adulthood in this, this crazy world we live in these days, we've set up all sorts of barricades and boundaries that that keep us uh, seemingly safe, uh, but at the same time, it also blocks a lot of a lot of uh, things like change. Change is the hardest thing to to go through. The older we get, you know, we become less flexible and more set in our ways. Um, and I think I'm at a, a point where I recognize that, which is half the battle, and then the other half is poof, is uh, is overcoming that and you can do that a number of different ways um some people use use um plants themselves uh, plant medicine to to overcome that and fire off neurons that were long dead in their in their brains you know um ayahuasca journeys or um you know that kind of thing well, I, th I think you need you need sometimes a triggering event uh right oftentimes uh We've gone so far uh, afloat, you know, afield from where we start. And I, I think it's hard to recognize when you're in it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you get far enough along that you no longer recognize yourself. And sometimes it takes a trig a triggering event. It takes some some horrible thing to happen. You know, a health diagnosis, uh, uh, a failure in a relationship, uh, any yeah. one of a number of things, you know, a, a, uh, you know, uh, a death. Uh, you know, something that occurs that it leaves you maybe heartbroken and looking uh, with a little more clarity at yeah. the path behind you yeah. um, to see how you got to where you are. Uh, and then once you, you look at that, I think real change can sort of come from that if you want it to. Like, well, you know, that you can be resilient and hit the reset button. It's uh, work. It's, and, it's work. I was yeah. hurt. Work. Uh, 
it's work. In in some circles, it is literally called the work. Um, and I was always, am I doing this right? And say, well, you're showing up, you're doing the work. Um, not to say that I've I'm, I've accomplished uh, shedding everything I've wanted to shed, but because this is a lifelong process, but. But um, yeah, I mean, seeing these these critters exit their their cocoons and and take flight um, sure was an interesting way of looking at at a, a process that I'm doing on a whole other other level. So I sometimes wish I could annihilate myself on a cellular level, and just be a different person. But um, but uh, I can't. I, I have photosynthesis envy too. I I, I marvel <laughs> at, at the ability of a tree just to take sunlight a little bit of water and and make stuff that's kind of amazing too you know well most things in nature are aren't they we we don't we look we walk past them in our rush to get from point a to point b yeah um, so stupid and arrogant and it just seems like um in relation to like some of the indigenous wisdom that we're slowly waking up to and thinking hmm Maybe the people that have been here for a few thousand years, maybe they were on to something, but maybe they did know something about this and that. Uh, um, so, so ignorant, are we? <laughs> so ignorant. I agree. Well, tell people how they can find you and find if they want to come see your show, how they can find or download the music. I don't know if anyone still surfs the web or if it's all just become app based or whatever. Um, uh, we have a website. It's called mothprojectlive.com. That's probably the best place to go. It has everything up there. It has, if you want to see what the show looks like, there's six or seven or eight videos up there filmed from live shows where it's basically one static show with, you know, maybe cutting to it every now and then but you can see oh this is what it looks like and sounds like there's video up there um the music is up there we're on all the streaming platforms too if they're on spotify or apple music um just look for moth project um but the website really and you know um we have an, an instagram and facebook page moth project live that will always update where we're playing um, i'm starting to book for next year um We've been going to some conferences. Uh, I just got back from Little Rock, Arkansas, from the annual NAI conference, National Association for Interpretation. So it's a thousand park rangers from across North America come together and say, well, what, what, how's it going, everyone? What are we doing this year? Kind of thing. I'm there with my booth. We, uh, we actually perform there and the park rangers come, well, we need to bring you to our park. So um, I'm booking shows that way. Um, similarly with museums and also the traditional music venues that I've been touring in for 40 years, which is um, clubs and theaters. Um, all that info will be updated on the on the website. It's really the, the, the best place um, um, to see what we're up to and what we're doing. Well, I highly recommend people check this out. It's 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 a symphony for your brain, really. Yeah. Um, you just get this opportunity to use your 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 mind uh to learn something new maybe and to truly enjoy the music uh so oh, yeah um, right there's music <laughs> there's music especially if you like jazz <laughs> <laughs> which you do i love it's my favorite uh you know and there's a lot of jazz lovers out there so if you like jazz this is an opportunity to do something different yeah uh, right it's not just like going to a concert there's there's a oh. whole other component to this yeah the, the visual um, thing is kind of spectacular when people are kind of surprised um 
buy it uh, that start to finish integrated. It's like one, it's one, one long film basically where we're, we're projecting onto us. And again, kind of disappearing into the image and interacting with these moths that are 12 feet by 20 feet um, large, <laughs> slow motion flight at 6,000 frames per second, you know, seeing the, the dust and the scales and the fur on them. I had no idea these things were so furry. They're incredible. So, I mean, I definitely encourage checking it out. It's for people who are in, uh, in New Jersey, New York, New Jersey area, a lot of people check out the like Liberty Science Center. And that's yeah. the whole reason people are drawn to the science. Yeah. Uh, and oftentimes they'll have, you know, even uh, some things that involve music there. And yep. um, there's just something to it, right? There's something to the companion to those two items. So I'll make sure the link gets put up um, with the with the podcast. Uh, yeah. I want to thank Peter for joining me today uh, and to talking about this project. It's very creative, very interesting. Uh, and I'm glad I got the opportunity to get the behind the scenes uh, info on it. Tony, thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to say goodbye for the podcast. Adios. Mm-hmm.